Again, good morning to everyone. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 14. Uh, in a few weeks' time, a uh, countless number of young people will be going off to college, many of them for the first time. Uh, back in my day, decades ago, uh, before I started college, there was something called orientation. I assume they still do that for new students. You show up a few days early maybe a week, and you orient yourself. Someone gives you a tour and shows you where the cafeterias are located, the sports complexes, offices, classrooms, library, in descending importance. I mentioned those things. All of these markers, all of these things you need, to, uh, you need to know about, you need to know of them, where they're located, and they serve as markers. They provide some orientation. Uh, orientation is extremely important, and not just when it comes to the student going off to college, university for the first time. But uh, whenever we navigate geography, a town, a city, a new location, uh, we need some sort of identifiable markers by which we can orient ourselves. If we don't have them, we quickly become disoriented. And here's the thing. It holds true when it comes to the realm of the spiritual. It holds true when it comes to the realm of the theological. It holds true when it comes to the realm of Christian piety. We need markers, markers by which we can orient ourselves. Without them, we end up meandering, or even worse, we end up going in circles. We end up spinning our wheels in mud. We need these markers by which we can constantly, which can, we can constantly return to, evaluate ourselves, evaluate our decisions, our desires, our motives, everything else, uh, thereby keeping us on the straight and narrow, orient. And today we're going to consider one such marker, and it's entitled Unhindered Power. And it emerges from a verse, a single, sta- single statement in 1 Samuel chapter 14. What is the context of this chapter? What's going on? What's transpiring? Well, the chapter involves a people's group known as the Israelites. And we are going back in time. We are going back close to 3,000 years, and we're looking at this nation known as the Israelites living in what we identify today as present-day Israel. They're facing a threat, an immediate danger, uh, a group known as the Philistines. And the Philistines have amassed an army. They have walked uncontested into the land of Israel. The Israelites are still in the Bronze Age. They haven't entered the Iron Age yet when it comes to weaponry. And so they are overmatched. They know they are no match for this invading Philistine army. And so most of them are now hiding in wells, cisterns, caves, tombs. They fled, fled before this advancing army. Uh, To make matters worse, to compound their problems, uh, their king, Saul, has sinned. He has disobeyed God. As a result, he is now suffering from spiritual inertia. He, too, is hiding himself in a cave. His standing army has dwindled to 600 men. And interestingly enough, Saul is joined in this cave by a man named Ahijah. So what? What does that have to do with anything? Ahijah is the great-grandson of Eli. So what? What does that have to do with anything? You go back to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, you'll remember that Eli fails to discipline his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. I believe those were their names. And these two priests had sinned. Their sin was repugnant in the sight of God. 
No remorse, no repentance. Eli failed to challenge them, their father. He failed to address it. He failed to do anything. And so God spoke through Samuel, and he told Eli that he was going to remove the priesthood from his line. Well, here we have Ahijah, a priest, with Saul. Do you know what that means? We have a rejected priest with a rejected king huddled in a cave, cowering before the enemy. Thank God there is still one man in Israel who thinks great thoughts of God. Look at the very first verse of chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, there he is, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, In the pomegranate cave at Migron, the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sene. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men. We will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked. And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, 
and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. Now what we have in this narrative, obviously, is a study in marked contrasts. Saul over here, Jonathan over here, Saul hides himself, Jonathan shows himself. Saul stays back, Jonathan crosses over. Saul lies low, Jonathan climbs up. Saul avoids the enemy, Jonathan engages the enemy. And here's the key, Saul looks to himself. Jonathan looks to God. That is made abundantly clear in verse 6. Verse 6 is the pillar upon which the entire narrative rests. It is the key for understanding the whole story. Look again at what we read there. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. He's making reference to the Philistines. They are outside of the covenant. They are cut off. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Notice his next statement. For, because, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Here Jonathan celebrates God's unhindered power. I have provided a beautiful definition of God's unhindered power in the sermon notes from an old English Puritan, Stephen Sharnick. Let me read it for you. and You pay careful attention to the three parts in this definition. God's power is that ability and strength whereby God can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom can direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will can resolve. Now, how did Jonathan arrive at that conclusion? 3,000 years ago, this is a primitive man. He doesn't have the internet. He doesn't have the books and the commentaries that are available to us. He doesn't have Matthew Henry's commentary. He doesn't have Strong's concordance. He doesn't have all of these resources. He doesn't have iPads and iPhones and Blackberries or Blueberries or whatever they are, all of these different things. How does this primitive man, ancient man, arrive at such a conclusion? First of all, Jonathan possesses creation. We call that fancy expression general revelation. So God reveals himself. God must reveal himself. Otherwise, he is unknowable. And God reveals himself through creation. And we call that general revelation. And so maybe Jonathan is a stargazer. So he likes to wander outside of his home, his tent at night. He looks up at the stars above loses himself in the vastness of the heavens. If Jonathan were alive today, he would have joined some of you some weeks ago outside in the dead of night taking pictures of that oversized moon. You know who you are. But Jonathan was a stargazer, perhaps, and he was awed by the glory of the heavens. Perhaps Jonathan, in addition to gazing at stars, took a look around at God's wonderful creation. He saw the snow-capped mountains. 
the roaring rivers, the mighty canyons, the rugged coastland, the majestic forests. He saw the complexity and the diversity within animal life and plant life. And he was inspired, the awe-inspired, as he beheld God's glory in creation. And perhaps Jonathan once in a while gazed at his own body. And just looked at that hand. How does this thing work? His eyes and the different parts of the body. What makes this tick? What makes this go? And Jonathan concluded that design demands a designer. Creation demands a creator. What Paul clearly testifies to in Romans chapter 1, creation reveals God's eternal power. It is not up for debate. It is not a question of a lack of evidence. The evidence is there. All men know it to be true inherently. Man rejects what he knows to be true inherently because professing to be wise, he has become a fool. But Jonathan has general revelation. And by looking at general revelation, he knows God's eternal power. But in addition to that, he has what we call special revelation. That's not what God reveals in the created order. That is what God reveals in Scripture. What does this man have? Well, he at least has the law, the five books of Moses. He's probably got the book of Job. Joshua and Judges might already be in circulation. And so by reading Scripture, he understands something of God's power. He can go right back to the creation account and read of Elohim, the dreaded one, the powerful one. And he sees that power revealed in the history of the nation of Israel. He sees it at the Exodus and those plagues which God brought upon the Egyptians. He sees it in God's preserving of his people throughout the wilderness, his settling of his people under Joshua in the land. He sees it when he reads of Gideon. Gideon. One man facing the Midianites. When he reads of Jephthah, one man facing the Ammonites. When he reads of Samuel, one man facing the Philistines. And from special revelation, what he can read, he arrives at this one conclusion. God is powerful. But not only, not only does Jonathan have general revelation. Again, that's creation. Not only does he have special revelation, that's Scripture. Jonathan has recent history. He has God's providence. Just consider for a moment briefly what Jonathan knows based on what has happened beginning in 1 Samuel 2 right up to the present in 1 Samuel 14. God opened Hannah's womb. Do you remember that? Last year, those of you who were here. Meaning what? God governs every birth. God orchestrated the deaths of Hophni and Phinehas. Meaning what? He governs every death. God afflicted the Philistines with tumors, meaning what? He governs every disease. God caused that idol, Dagon, of the Philistines to fall on its face before the Ark of the Covenant, meaning what? God governs every demon. God appointed Samuel as judge. He appointed Saul as king, meaning what? He governs every individual. God directed the lost donkeys, Saul, do you remember, when he went out looking for them? Meaning what? God governs every animal. God sent a terrible storm to warn Israel of the seriousness of its sin. Meaning what? God governs every raindrop. God sent the Philistines. He sent the Ammonites. He sent other nations to punish Israel, subsequently punish those nations. Meaning what? God governs every nation. Do you understand, friend? 
that what Jonathan declares in verse 6 is simply a reasonable deduction. It is simply a logical conclusion. As he beholds creation, general revelation. As he reads scripture, special revelation. And as he takes account of God's providential dealings in recent history, part of it his own history, transpiring and happening in his own days, his conclusion is what? Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Here's why. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Here's why. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That is a marker in the life of Jonathan. It orients him. And it is an operating principle in his life. And where I'm going with this, this morning, this day, is as follows. Here we have a marker, a definite marker. Here we have a truth concerning God's unhindered power, which provides essential, necessary orientation. This is a verse I can't remember how long ago, at least 10 years, maybe 12 years ago. I had certainly read it before that time or heard sermons on it. But it was a verse, it was a declaration which really grabbed my attention 10, 12 years ago. And I have returned to it time again, repeatedly over the years, gleaning, deriving, concluding, well, if this be the case, what does it mean? If this is true, what are the implications? How am I to orient my life according to this undeniable reality, God's unhindered power? It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I've come up with dozens of conclusions, and I'm going to emphasize five this morning. Now, I have just frustrated some of you right there, you sermon note takers, because you're looking in the bulletin, and you'll notice there are six. Well, I'm going to skip one for the sake of time. And I'm not going to tell you each one just to make it exciting for you. I'm going to skip one of them, not just for the sake of time, but also because it's number three. I know Arthur's just itching there. Which one is it? Which one is it? Uh, We're going to skip that one because it's going to come up again in the remainder of chapter 14. Next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we're going to come back to it. But we're going to stress these five, the big five, truths by implication that we derive from this great marker, God's unhindered power, and what it means to orient our lives according to this undeniable reality. And so the first truth is this, number one, the salvation of God's people rests, I love that word, rests, sets its weight, the idea of putting its weight on something. The salvation of God's people rests on his unhindered power. And so look just briefly at verse 23 in our text. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Jonathan was simply a means to an end. Jonathan was simply an instrument that the Lord used to get it going. But it is an actual fact, the Lord, God Almighty, who saves Israel from their enemies. So too, it is God who saves us from our enemies, spiritually speaking. How does he do that? He does it by his unhindered power. I enjoy, time doesn't give me, I don't have a lot of time for it, but I do enjoy once in a while reading or, or watching a, a, reading a suspense novel or, or watching a, a suspense movie. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite movies of all time, I won't name it because I don't want to get, put a plug for a movie, but it made back in the 60s, and it involves this crack commando team which has to penetrate this impenetrable 
uh, Nazi fortress way behind Germ- German lines to, in, in order to, to infiltrate this complex spy network. And, and, and oh, the suspense. Watch it for the first time when I was 13 years of age. I watch it every five years. So what's that? Maybe a half dozen times now. Just watched it a year, uh, a year ago. I was still on the edge of my seat. The obstacles, the, the hindrances, the opposition. And the, the, the greater the uncertainty, what? The greater our suspense. And we all enjoy that. Good suspense novel. The greater the uncertainty, how, how, how are they going to do it? How, how is he going to be able to overcome that? Crabby aliens, scary villains, deadly viruses. How are they going to be able to do it? And the obstacles seem insurmountable. And the greater that anxiety, the greater that tension, the greater our suspense. Here's the thing I want us to understand and be very clear on. When it comes to our salvation, there is no suspense. Have you realized that, Christian? When it comes to our salvation, there is no suspense. As a matter of fact, I don't mean any disrespect by this. I'm just stating the plain truth. Our salvation is rather melodramatic. Ho-hum. Rather melodramatic. Now you think, Stephen, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is simply what Paul affirms in Romans 8, verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? There is no suspense. There are no obstacles to overcome. There is no opposition to speak of. If God, the one who alone possesses unhindered power, is for us, the logical inference is what? Who can be against us? And Paul sets that in a beautiful context, a golden chain of salvation. And he's speaking to believers. Please understand this. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to God's people. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those who've repented of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he does there in the context of Romans 8.31 is he forces us to look backwards. Election. Predestination. And he forces us to look ahead. Glorification. And his point is what? That from beginning to end, as we look back in the quarters of time before the foundation of the world, we see that our salvation is rooted in divine election. And he forces us to look the other way, glorification, and he speaks of it in the past tense because it is absolute certainty. And everything in between, his point is what? That salvation, our salvation from beginning to consummation end, it rests entirely upon God's sovereignty. It rests entirely upon the grace of God. And it rests entirely upon God's unhindered power. If God be for us, pray tell somebody please, who can be against us? That's his point. Now, we've re- we recently witnessed the tornado, didn't we? What was that six, seven weeks ago that thing blew through? Pecan and other areas over there. And, and, the, and the devastation caused by tornadoes, a whole new appreciation for tornadoes since moving to Texas five, five years ago. And that, that, that tree, you know, this big around, roots going deep, no match for the tornado. That vehicle, bicycle, car, pickup truck, lorry, 18-wheeler, whatever the size, no match for the tornado. The building, prefab, brick, mortar, size, it doesn't matter. No match for the tornado. So too, Christian, when it comes to our salvation, there is no match for God. There is no match. There is no equal. There is no opposition to unhindered power. 
And so Martin Luther declared wonderfully, if God, whose omnipotence calls into being all things, be for us, nothing can be against us. Everything that the Creator has created must be subject to Him. Now there's a truth we must orient our lives by. The salvation of God's people rests on his unhindered power. The second truth is this. This one's wordy. I'll repeat it twice. The difficulties which seem to lie in the way of the fulfillment of God's promises disappear in the light of God's unhindered power. Again, the difficulties which seem to lie in the way of the fulfillment, realization of God's promises, disappear in the light of God's unhindered power. Now return with me to the text and listen very carefully how Jonathan's declaration sort of evolves here and develops. Yes, verse 6, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Friend, do not confuse courage with recklessness. His courage does not lead him into recklessness. He does not think to himself, well, God is powerful, word, faith, movement. If I just have enough faith and can conjure up my, something in my spirit, in my heart, big enough, then, then somehow I will unleash God's power, I will get God plugged in, and he'll be unleashed to do what it is I want him to do. That's not his thinking. Look at what he says in verse 10. But if they say, he's speaking of the Philistines, we're going to show ourselves to them. If they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. And so, yes, on the one hand, We have Jonathan's unwavering conviction concerning God's power, unhindered power. But Jonathan does not move without what? A promise. He does not move without a sign. We should not be looking for signs. We have God's word. We immerse ourselves in God's word. There we discover his promises. And when God speaks, we have this conviction, this certainty that he will fulfill exactly what he has promised. One of the greatest examples of this, and I've shared it with you many times, is that of Abraham, as recorded in Romans 4.18. It is a simply unbelievable statement. In hope, he believed against hope. That's Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope. Believed what? Believed anything he felt like? Believed God's promise. God's promise concerning what? A son. That God was going to give Abraham and Sarah a son. Abraham believed that promise. He believed it against hope, meaning what? He looked at his circumstances. He looked at how old he was. He looked at how old his wife was. And he knew that physically speaking, humanly speaking, this was impossible. But not only did Abraham believe against hope, he believed in hope. Because not only did Abraham look at his circumstances, but he looked at his God, El Shaddai, God Almighty. And he knew that if God had promised it, God most certainly has the power to fulfill it. And Paul tells us right there in the context in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham, this is a wonderful statement, memorize it please, that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I'll repeat it. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see, faith is not believing God can do anything. All things are possible. Did you catch that? We're bombarded with that message today. Faith is not believing anything is possible. That's not faith. That's not biblical faith. 
I'm going to repeat it again because so many of us get confused on this one. Biblical faith is not believing that anything is possible. Biblical faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. Biblical faith, I'm going to repeat it one more time because this is a stumbling block for so many of us. Biblical faith is not believing anything is possible. Biblical faith is believing, being fully convinced that what God has promised, He will do. And so Jonathan's conviction concerning God's unhindered power, accompanied with a clear sign, a promise, and all apparent obstacles melt. Like in a hot summer sun, they just melt before Jonathan. And so the Philistines' military superiority becomes irrelevant. The Israelites' numerical disadvantage disadvantage becomes irrelevant. The impenetrable, rocky terrain becomes irrelevant. All of these difficulties which seem to lie in the way of the fulfillment of God's promises disappear in the light of His power. And so, Christian, hear these words. God will fulfill his promises despite all circumstantial evidence to the contrary. He promises to give peace in all circumstances, no matter the circumstance. He promises to give wisdom in the midst of trials. He promises to forgive us when we confess our sins. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He promises to raise us from the dead. That's our great hope. He promises to crush the devil finally. He promises to build his church completely. He promises to work all things together for our good, our holiness. He promises to complete the work he has started in us. And we are fully convinced that he is able to do what he has promised. The difficulties, no matter the difficulties, which seem to lie in the way of the fulfillment of God's promises, disappear in the light of God's unhindered power. Truth number three, the state of the damned, and I make no apology for using that word. We've air-conditioned hell in our day, and it's time to turn the heat back on. And I don't say that flippantly, but we have. We have air-conditioned hell in our day. The state of the damned, is inconceivably miserable because their punishment proceeds from God's unhindered power. The state of the damned is inconceivably miserable because their punishment proceeds from God's unhindered power. Yes, Jonathan strikes with his sword. He does so by God's power. Yes, his armor bearer follows him. He too striking with the sword. But look at what we read at the end of verse 15. The garrison and even the raiders trembled The earth quaked. That's not Jonathan, nor is that his armor bearer. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. That is God exercising his unhindered power. The Bible testifies to it. Go all the way back to Adam's fall and his expulsion from the garden. You follow it up, fast forward to the flood, and God's unhindered power unleashed in the judgment of humanity in that day saved Noah and his family. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah and the fire and the brimstone, God, the unleashing of God's unhindered power. You think of the, 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 the decimation of the Canaanites and all of those tribes. You think of God's punishment upon Babylon. You think of his punishment of the city of Jerusalem. 
You go through Scripture and evidence, mounting evidence of the unleashing of God's hindered power. And friends, we simply survey human history. And we see what? That the wrath of God is clearly revealed from heaven. If we care to look, this is a fact, this is a truth which is undeniable. If we care to look, if we have the stomach, the nerve to look, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And the unfurling, the unfolding, the releasing of his unhindered power in punishment, that will be the source of inconceivable misery for the damned. Let me affirm that by way of four truths. And I am speaking, oh, I am speaking to unbelievers here right now for this moment. I'm speaking to all of us. This is something we as Christians must never lose sight of. We even now orient our lives according to this truth. But let me really speak directly to the unbeliever. Let me affirm four truths from God's Word. The first is this. Sin is serious. Your sin is serious. Preacher, I was reading a book in, this, in which this preacher wrote the following I will always remember a little grandma who heard that I was studying to be a pastor and wanted to give me a bit of advice before I headed off to serve at my first church. Here's what she said Whatever you do, don't talk about sin. I used to go to a church where the pastor always talked about sin, it made me miserable. But the pastor of the church I go to now never talks about sin. And I love it. No wonder. Because we're in love with ourselves. We don't want to face facts. We don't want to confront the reality head on. Our sin is serious. Our sin is far more... God takes our sin far more seriously than we do. He takes our idolatry seriously. We love so many things more than Him. He takes our temper tantrums seriously. Takes our deceitfulness, proneness to deceive seriously. Takes our stubbornness and hard headedness seriously. Takes our lust seriously, our selfishness seriously, our immorality, our greed, our envy, our biting tongue. He takes all of these things seriously. In each of these sins, please get this. In each of these sins, there is a spirit of atheism. There is a spirit of hatred. There is a spirit of of murder. And God takes it most seriously. Second truth is this. Hell is real. And I'm going to say again, state again what I stated a few moments ago. Evangelicalism is air-conditioned. The vast majority of evangelicals would still profess to believe in hell. The vast majority of evangelicals no longer live like they really believe it. Hell is real. Eternal torment is real. The Bible describes it in, in vivid terms, vivid colors. It speaks of a worm, the gnawing of conscience, a conscience that will trouble for all eternity, condemning. It speaks of darkness disintegration, speaks of fire, unspeakable pain, speaks of chains, bondage. Let the most gifted writer, says John MacArthur, let the most gifted writer exhaust his skill in describing this roaring cavern of unending fire, and he would not even brush in fancy the nearest edge of hell. Hell is real. 
Third truth is this, Christ is the only Savior. Remember three words, crucifixion, resurrection, intersection. Christ is the one who died. Crucifixion, substitutionary death, bearing God's judgment, his wrath. Resurrection, Christ is the one who was raised, testifying to God's acceptance of his sacrifice. Christ is the one who now appears at God's right hand, making intercession. And so by his appearance, he assures the application of all that he has purchased by his crucifixion and his resurrection. There is therefore no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Philip Ryken writes, oh, some paragraphs just grab and hold my attention. This is one of them. Give this your fullest attention. Philip Ryken pens, we will all be there. He's speaking of the judgment seat. We will all be there. The high and the low, the rich and the poor, the sinners and the saints, from the dungeon to the throne, no one will escape. No one will be granted an exemption. No one will receive any special treatment. The rich may travel first class all their lives, but when they get to the final judgment of God, God will not examine their bank accounts. Nor will the poor have something coming to them simply because their lives were more difficult. God is no respecter of persons. And he will judge everyone by the same standard. He does not care what color we are. He does not care how much money we have, where we go to school, what company we work for, or even how good we think we are. What matters to God is whether or not we have faith in the sacrifice of his son. Those who trust in the blood of Christ will receive eternal life. Those who do not hold on to Him and to His cross will be finally lost. The great divide between salvation and damnation is marked in blood. Christ is the only Savior. The fourth truth is this, building. God's forgiveness is conditional. You might balk at that one when you first hear it. God's forgiveness, did did he say that right? Did I hear that? God's forgiveness is conditional. Now, surely he meant to say God's forgiveness is unconditional. No, it is not. Biggest fallacy going in our day. God's forgiveness is not unconditional. God's forgiveness is conditional. It is conditional on two factors which must be fully satisfied. His justice must be satisfied. And it is satisfied in one place, that is Calvary's cross, where Christ bore the Father's righteous indignation. The second condition is this, friend. You must repent. There is the condition. Forgiveness is conditional. It is conditioned upon our repentance and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is serious. Hell is real. Christ is the only Savior. God's forgiveness is conditional. Let me repeat the overarching truth. The state of the damned is inconceivably miserable because their punishment proceeds from God's unhindered power. And so as a minister of the gospel, I stand before you this day and I testify on behalf of the king. I proclaim on behalf of the king, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. A failure to repent and turn is to incur the righteous judgment for all eternity in a place called hell. Let us be clear on it. Let us not mix words. Let us be plain. Let us be forthright. Let us be clear spoken. The king declares it through his servants this day all around this world. Ministers of the gospel standing forth and proclaiming, here it is, repent 
and believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Fourth truth by which we must orient ourselves is this. God furthers his kingdom through the exercise, the exercise, the use of his unhindered power. And so again, that's what we see in the text. We see God by his unhindered power rescuing the Israelites from their oppressors, the Philistines. We see this through the entire book of Judges. And when we step back in time, 3,000, 4,000 years, into the days of the Judges, into the days of the kings, we have Christ's coming kingdom foreshadowed, prefigured. And so just as God saves his people physically back in that day, it points to a far greater salvation accomplished in an individual, the Lord Jesus Christ, by which God saves us from our enemies. And he has established the kingdom. Christ inaugurated that kingdom at his first coming. He will consummate that kingdom at his second coming. And right now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he tells us he has been invested with all authority in heaven on earth. And Paul tells us that God has put all things in subjection under his feet and he has given Christ as head over all things to the church. And he now reigns and rules by unhindered power through his word and through his spirit. So how do we keep going when things are difficult? What do we do when false thought patterns have a choke hold on people? What happens when we feel ill-equipped to deal with mounting problems? How do we move forward when we feel like we're navigating a minefield? How do we convince someone to be more serious about spiritual things? How do we get someone to stop ruining her life? How do we get someone to stop making foolish, foolish choices? How do we break a hard heart? How do we humble a hard heart? Are you ready for the answer? It's very complex. We don't. God does. We look to the king the one who reigns in unhindered power and reigns by his word and his spirit. All he has called us to be is faithful. All he has called us to do is serve him and understand this glorious truth. The history of the church is Christ saving many through the faithful ministry of a few. Or in the words of John Knox, he put it beautifully, one man with God is always a majority. One man with God is always a majority. God furthers his kingdom through the exercise of his unhindered power as his people that drives us to our knees in prayer and we serve him in dependence upon him. In dependence, looking to him to accomplish his plans and purposes through his unhindered power. Truth number five, the last one is this. God's people can endure the greatest affliction because God's unhindered power is engaged on our behalf. And so God's people can endure the greatest affliction. Replace that word with suffering, if you like, because God's unhindered power is engaged on our behalf. Now, to really get this one, we need to use our imagination just a little bit. Most of us, probably 99% of us, have known this story for years, decades. And we know what's coming in a few chapters, don't we? We know God is going to raise up an individual, a man named David, a man after his own heart. 
But let's suppose for a moment, let's just try to imagine that this was the first time we'd ever read this book. Can you do that? I know it's difficult. So forget that you know what's coming in 1 Samuel, and you've ever heard of somebody called David. And you've just picked up this book for the first time, and you're reading it. And you see that Saul's made a mess of things. And then you see back in chapter 13, verse 14, that through Samuel, God tells him that now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Aha, somebody's coming. Saul's finished. Saul's done. And now God is going to raise up a true king, someone after his own heart. Boy, I wonder who that might be. And you come to chapter 14. The first three words are what? One day, Jonathan. What a young man he is. What a man of God. What a pillar of the faith. What, what, what great faith he has in God Almighty. And look at how God uses him as a deliverer. Well, I know what's coming. God's going to push Saul out of the way. And here's the man after God's own heart, Jonathan, who will be the next king. What does happen? God passes Jonathan over. He's passed over for another, David. Jonathan will become the object of his father's hostility, outright animosity. And Jonathan will die unceremoniously. He will die a bloody, gory, brutal death on a lonely hill. And Jonathan will simply become a footnote in the pages of Israel. Now, inside, I'll speak for me, but I know it's true of you too. You know what my knee-jerk reaction is to that? That's not fair. Well, that's not fair. Why would I think like that? Because deep down inside, do you know how we all still function? We are performance-based. And deep down inside, do you know what all of us, and we struggle with this, do you know what all of us think? We think goodness and obedience merits reward. Jonathan's done all the right things. Jonathan is a man of God. Jonathan has just been used fantastically as, as, as a soldier to bring about, bring about this great military victory. He deserves better than to die on that lonely hill years later, forgotten to the pages of history. That isn't fair. Friend, be very careful how you use and employ that phrase. You see, Jonathan understood something that most of us, I dare say, if you want to pick a fight with me later, that's fine. Most of us in this room are still struggling with. It takes us right back to his declaration. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. None of us have a problem with the second part of that statement. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Amen. That's what I love to hear about. That's what I love to celebrate. That's raw power. God's unhindered power. I believe it. No, what most of us struggle with is the first part of the statement. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Meaning what? If he pleases. If he chooses. Jonathan is under no illusions. Jonathan is not performance-based. Well, look, Lord, I, I'm, I'm distancing myself from my, 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 my father who's, who's slowly going crazy. I, I'm removing myself from the chaos. I'm stepping out in faith. And we all know what that means. That means that now you must use your unhindered power to make sure my life goes well. Anybody in this room think like that? Well, I've read all of Paul Tripp's books on child-rearing. I'm even homeschooling, right? That's good. Fine. No problem with that. I'm in church every Sunday. 
I've decided to give a tithe. No one's told me to, but I'm doing that. And once in a while, I throw in a little extra just to make sure. And I'm volunteering at VBS. And I've never fallen into gross sexual immorality or anything like that. And um, living clean. And I'm doing it all right. I'm doing it all like I'm supposed to do. And here's what I think deep down, whether or not I ever verbalize it. God now owes me. I'm the good one. I've obeyed as he's called me to obey. And now God is supposed to do what? Uphold his end of the bargain. God is supposed to use his unhindered power to make sure I now live a life free of suffering. I live a blessed life. I live a happy life. I live a comfortable life. You will find that nowhere in Scripture. That is not the God Jonathan served. That is not the God Jonathan worships. Jonathan makes it plain. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He oriented his life by that truth. I dare say he oriented his life by that truth when he was passed over for David. Why him and not me? I dare say he oriented his life by that truth as he saw his father fallen, his cousins and brothers dying, by the dozens on that hill. And when he himself is pierced and he is breathing his last life breath, his blood flowing from him, he still oriented his life by this truth. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. How can he do that? Because he understands that God governs his own unhindered power by his own unfathomable knowledge. A knowledge to which we are rarely privy. Our knowledge of things is severely limited, whereas God's knowledge is absolutely limitless. We judge circumstances according to our finite perspective, but God knows all things by one infinite act of understanding. His perfect knowledge governs his unhindered power. That is why we trust him. And that is how we endure the greatest affliction. I will not pretend for one moment otherwise. There is a hard lesson learned, brother. There is a very, very difficult lesson learned, sister. Why? Because deep down inside, each and every one of us is still performance-based. Friends, understand, we never, ever want God to deal with us on the basis of our performance. Never, ever. Anything short of damnation is a mercy. That's the starting point for our understanding. And that is a truth by which we orient our lives. Number one, the salvation of God's people rests on His unhindered power. Number two, the difficulties which seem to lie in the way of the fulfillment of God's promises disappear in the light of God's unhindered power. Number three, the state of the damned is inconceivably miserable because their punishment proceeds from God's unhindered power. Number four, God furthers His kingdom through the exercise of His unhindered power. And number five, God's people can endure the greatest affliction because God's unhindered power is engaged on our behalf. Many moons ago, Allison and I were in Lisbon and we decided to travel to a place called Sintra, famous castle, dating back to the 13th century. 
built by the Moors. And uh, this castle set, sits on a, on a hill. We took the train from Lisbon to Sintra, disembarked from the train, and we could see the castle there on the hill. And uh, we could fix our eyes on it and make our way walking through the hills and the valleys, through the town at the foot of the hill, and arrive at the base. And we did that how? Simply by keeping our eyes fixed on the castle. But at the base, at the foot of that hill, we entered into a thick forest. And the hill and the surrounding hills completely surrounded by forest. And the moment we entered into that forest, we lost sight of what? The castle. And we became what? Disoriented. And what happened? Two hours later, we were no closer to the castle than when we had set out. That describes how many of us here today. You are meandering. Sort of like this. Or even worse, you're stuck on the merry-go-round. On one of the horses that doesn't even go up and down. There you are, just sitting there. Around and around and around and around. Oh, we must orient our lives. We need markers. And we must orient our lives according to these markers, these vital truths and realities. And here's a great one. And we get it from the lips of Jonathan. God's unhindered power. Our Father above, we pray. You would come now and bless your word to each man, each woman, each boy, each girl gathered here. We pray that we send forth your spirit to give understanding and uh, grant heartfelt application. For unbelievers, oh, we know there are some, our Father. We pray that this might be the day of salvation, that you'd be well pleased to manifest your power in their salvation, and that you may be well pleased to give them a taste of your boundless grace, that you might be well pleased to give them a taste of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for all, that your word as it has gone forth might find fertile soil, and that the result might be the furtherance of your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom. And we seek this from you now in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.